I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today, we have a jam-packed episode. Um, I'm going to do a little thing here on the top five players post-Tiger. We also have Brentley Romine from Golf Channel coming on to talk about the NCAAs, uh, Rojang, and then a little bit of a men's preview uh, with the men's uh, championship coming up soon. Uh, And then we also have a, a long chat with Ryan Carey. He's the founder of Golden Age Auctions um, and just wanted to talk to him about his entrepreneurial journey in golf. Uh, he's built quite the business uh, and uh, it's a really interesting story of somebody doing something unique in golf. And uh, he has some pretty cool stories from the business. So before we get into any of that, let's go through the uh, top five players post-Tiger. So I thought this was a fitting exercise. Brooks Kepka wins the PGA, just a really dominant performance. He was scintillating and um, is just, you know, moving himself up in the echelons of golf, uh, becoming one of the all-time greats. I think he was probably an all-time great before this win, but um, to do it after the injuries, after going to live, all of that, come back this year, finishes second at the Masters, had a great chance to win there, and then uh, wins in fairly dominant fashion. I think something that I brought up on the Shotgun Start um, on our show right after um, that I found really interesting is is he closed with rounds of 66, 66, 67. He obviously had the first round 72. He was a little shaky. Um, wasn't great right off the bat. It's an eerily similar performance to that at Bethpage, except, you know, at Bethpage, he was gangbusters out the out of the gate in the first three rounds. It was just, you know, he put it away 36 holes in. He set a record for scoring and threw 36 holes. And, you know, going into Sunday, it was pretty much a foregone conclusion until he struggled a little bit. And Dustin Johnson made a charge. But, you know, it got kind of close. There was a moment of doubt with four holes left. but. Not really, you know, that much doubt um, throughout. This one felt closer, maybe felt closer than it actually was. I have to give Victor Hovland props. He was he was spectacular. Obviously, 16 was the big turning point um, in the round. Really unbelievable shot by Kepka there to ice it. But, um, you know, great performance. So that's what spurred on this top five players post Tiger and Phil. I think that's what we're talking about. Tiger, Phil, Ernie, post them, who are the best players in golf? And I think, you know, we have a lot of players to choose from. When you go down to five, it's tough. You know, guys like Adam Scott and Sergio Garcia, I think they're unique. You know, they have basically the same exact career. Uh, They have a major of players, tons of wins. I mean, if you put them side by side, it's wild how similar they are. Um, You know, they didn't make this. And I think it's, it's important to note with them, some of their prime 
coincided with the really dominant Tiger Woods, that 1999 to 2008 Tiger Woods. And, you know, that's the tough thing about this is where are they if they are born a little bit later, um, if they are part of this era, you know, they grew up with TrackMan. Where where are they? There's been so much technological change in golf. Um, we did a podcast years ago that that dove into like what happens in workplaces when there's these massive technological changes, workforces, and how there's you know generally a huge youth movement. And it's not because of just necessarily talent. It's because of the technology change and different skills are rewarded. And I think if you look at golf. That's definitely the case. And I think Adam Scott and Sergio Garcia have been able to bridge the years where a lot of their peers have fallen off, become rather irrelevant. But those two have bridged the gap because of how talented they were, how skilled they were. And really, you know, Tiger had this way of just crushing people that came in his wake uh, during his heyday. And those guys were, you know, Face some of the fiercest um, Tiger things, especially you think about Sergio, some of the close calls in majors, um, two PGAs at, at Medina, you finished runner up um, or close. I can't remember off the top of my head what happened in 99, but he finished runner up in 2005. Um, obviously, the Open where he was uh, famously Tweety Bird. You know, these guys uh, ran uh, the gauntlet against uh, Tiger. So they aren't on here. Let's get to number five. I've got Jordan Spieth, three majors. You know, the thing with Spieth is it's just, you just wonder, and this is the thing about golf. What makes golf crazy is like, who's the best at 14 isn't going to be the best at 18. Who the best at 18 isn't necessarily who's going to be the best at 21. Who the best at 23 isn't going to be the best at 28. Um, And so on and so forth. You keep going up and up. Jordan Spieth was without a doubt the best player in the world, um, you know, and it happened in his early 20s. Now, you know, you think about that 2015 year, it was just an unbelievable year, really the run from 2015 through 2017, 2014 through 2017 was was phenomenal. I just wonder, you know, three majors, have we seen the best golf from Jordan Spieth or does he have another run in him? I, I mean, it's just a... It's a fascinating aspect of golf. We haven't seen the dominance uh, since 2016, really, 2015. Um, We have seen a lot of very good play, but to be on this list, you need to be really great. And I just wonder, you know, what his career pans out to be. I think like it could be one where we see three majors and 20 plus wins on the PGA Tour is going to be, I mean, it's a great, great career. Um, but you know, when that great golf was, was really young. Um, and we'll see, I hope, I hope it comes back cause he's, he's great for the game. He's one of the most popular players, one of the players that really makes an impact on television and, uh, ratings. So hopefully we get another Smith run next up. I've got John Rahm and it's crazy that he's already here. Um, he's number four. He's got two majors. He's been just utterly dominant. Um, he's not even the number one ranked player in the world, which I found to be, you know, something like we did the pod podcast at right after. And it's like kind of like leaked out. It was became a bigger story after a couple of days. I think Michael Block and and uh, Brooks really ate up the oxygen. But 
Sky Scheffler's back to number one in the world, which is wild in a year that Rom's won five times. But you just start to look at Rom and where he's going. I mean, like, you know, the number, the sheer number of wins, the, you know, people will look at the PGA Tour wins, but he also has racked up a bunch of European Tour wins, a bunch of Rolex events on the European Tour, which are their big time events. So these are, you know, obviously he has some some Spain, Andalusia Masters, Spain, Spanish Open, uh, you know, the Mexico Open last year wasn't like a great win, but he's done a lot of damage. And I, I expect this to only kind of go up. Number three, Dustin Johnson. Two majors, tons of close calls. Obviously, just utterly dominant, consistent career on the PGA Tour. Um, he's been good at live, not you know, he was the best player on the tour last year. I, I don't know what exactly that means. He hasn't been great in majors the last two years, which I I don't expect him to not pop. I think he'll he'll play well. I thought we were going to get a good DJ week this week at Oak Hill, especially after that first round. But then he kind of fizzled out. We'll see what's left with Dustin Johnson. But, you know, the number of WGCs that this guy won, you know, he's second to Tiger on that list. Um, You know, it is. uh. He's, he had a great career. And I think like the thing that we get wrapped up with um, is the thing with DJ is the longevity of it. Really a decade plus of great play. And um, he is uh, consistency and longevity. One of the hard things with golf and golf careers, right? They have just a longer tail than other sports like football, especially like it's a great you know, you obviously the quarterbacks are playing forever, but like, let's just take a running back in football. Their careers are getting shorter and shorter, and it's becoming harder and harder to compare across eras. Um, one of the things that you need to do is you need to look at like dominant bursts, right? Who is the best in their best five years, maybe? With DJ, he's got just that enduring golf game where he's been a great player, one of the best in the world for a decade plus, and that's really hard to do. Um, so Dustin Johnson's three on my list. Number two, I'm clocking in here. Brooks Kepka. He's got the lead in majors. He's got five. Um, he's got more than Rory, who's number one. I, I hope that doesn't come as a surprise. I think Brooks is really close to being number one. Uh, one more major. He's for sure. Number one in my books, but Brooks hasn't done it as long as Rory has. Um, Rory's been a great player. Brooks has done a lot more uh, recently than Rory. He's won his five majors since Rory had four. And, um, you know, that's a that's an interesting aspect of the Rory McIlroy situation is he hasn't won a major in 10 years. He talked about it on full swing. It feels like I'm trying to win my first. And that's a it's a tough burden to overcome with Brooks. It's just been it's been unbelievable. And it's not just the wins. It's the way he's racked up high finishes. It's the close calls. It's the, you know, if Phil didn't win at Kiowa, Brooks was going to win. It's the, you know, in the mix of the Masters with Rom in a duel, and Rom got the best of them. He's both come up very, very close, very, you know, close calls short at times to great players, Tiger Woods in 2019. But he's also had dominant wins. And, you know, that's the thing I think that's most impressive with Brooks is that he has he has had amazingly dominant wins. When you think about Aaron Hills, where it was kind of a foregone conclusion on the back nine on Sunday, Beth Page, similar. 
Oak Hill, I'm not going to put it exactly there, but it was close. Like it just, it felt inevitable. And he has, I think the greatest players have that feeling of inevitability. Um, and, you know, you stack, stack up the way his finishes mirror Tiger Woods. And it's, it's super impressive. He's 33. You figure, you know, I don't know exactly what the status of his um, lower body is where he's had these problems, hip, knee problems. But let's just say he has four of the next five years are good years. He's got 16 chances. He's winning at about a 15% clip right now. You know, he, I don't think it's out of the question. He could get to eight, nine uh, major wins. And, and at that point, he's the greatest of the generation. I think the thing that you can pull back and why he's not where Rory is, is that he doesn't have the year in, year out consistency, the track record. I'm not a big PGA Tour wins guy. I don't think I don't put a ton of stock into that. I uh, or live tour. You know, you can give Brooks his two live wins. I'm not a big like regular event guy. I I really value the majors way more than anything else. And it's it's I thought about putting Brooks at number one, but the reason Rory's number one is just sheerly the consistency year in year out for over a decade. This is something like. There are very, very few players. If you look, if you go back through history, very few players are dominant players among the best in the world for over 10 years. You know, that list is tiny. Like when you start to look at it, you know, you see these guys that just like they peak, they have 10 great years and they fall off. With Rory McIlroy, we're over 10 years right now and it doesn't look like it's slowing down. I mean, this could be, of all the guys, you know, I think John Rahm, he's got kind of like the body type of you see some of these enduring players. He's big. He's got a big waist like these types of body types endure. But when you look at Rory, I think like when we look at what golf, where golf's going, what golf is becoming, it's speed oriented. These young guys, a lot of them are really like they have similar games and it's, it's tough to figure out who's going to be better than the other guy. But with Rory, Rory might be one of the few 20 plus year superstars, right? If we could get, if he gets to 2029, six years out, he's about 40, that he'll be 20 years. And I don't know how many of those we have left in the game of golf with the direction it's going. So Rory's number one. He's obviously, I, I, this is not. He's got two FedEx Cups. I don't really care about that. He's got a players. He's got four majors, but it's just a sheer wins. I mean, like a down year for Rory. It's two wins. It's it's a and he's done it for over a decade. So that is kind of why he's number one. Uh, Brooks can pass him with more majors. Um, we'll see if Rory gets one. I, you know, you keep saying this, and and I've been saying this for four or five years. Like you expect Rory. Rory's gonna get one. I think that I still think that's the case. I mean, you look at it, he didn't play great at Oak Hill. You could go into why he didn't play great at Oak Hill, but he didn't play well at Oak Hill. He did not have his A game and he still, you know, had an outside shot at, at contending on the weekend. It things didn't I think he made just too many bogeys, too many mistakes on the weekend, but he had an outside shot going into the weekend. And um, you know, that's that's impressive in its own right to play pretty poorly. I Bet he would walk away thinking, hey, I had my B minus C game 
and I still finish top 10. Not many players do that. Brooks obviously is another guy that can do that. And uh, super exciting going into LACC. Brooks getting that win just adds fuel to the fire. I think I saw that I saw he's not a favorite. I saw he's not the favorite. I think it, it goes. Uh, I a buddy of mine was texting me about um, betting favorites for for um, LACC. I think it goes Rom, Scheffler, Rory, Kepka, which is crazy. I mean, he finished second and first. Feels like a redux. Kepka works everywhere, um, and obviously all all four of those guys. I think they have elevated themselves um, to their own class in the sport right now. And uh, super excited for LACC. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our sponsors, and then we'll get to Brentley Romine. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at the USGA. This is a uh, great time of year to become a USGA member. Uh, We've got the US uh, Open fast approaching at LACC. Also, the US Women's Open at uh, Pebble Beach. It's going to be a great couple weeks in... uh, kind of back half of June through July uh, for the USGA championships on top of everything else they're doing. I mean, they have a ton of great championships throughout the year. It's not just that. I'm super excited about the U.S. Women's Am at Bel Air. That will be a must-watch event. Um, But becoming a member really uh, helps them promote the game of golf, grow the game of golf, and, um, you know, ensure that the game of golf is moving in the right, right direction so that it is a, a game that endures our kids and our kids' kids' uh, generations. So with the, with the USGA membership, it's $45 a year. You get the hat. Obviously, you can get the U.S. Open or U.S. Women's hat. A great hat to have, uh, good, good venues to ha- have. You get a year's subscription to the Golf Journal magazine. Uh, that's their publication. It's really good. They have a, they have a lot of good stuff in there, um, good articles, worth, worth reading. Um, then obviously you get the bag tag, uh, you get some member discounts. Um, but the big thing is that you're supporting golf and this is a great, great father's day gift. Um, you know, it's that time of year again, father's day is right around the corner. Um, this is an awesome one for anybody that loves golf, that loves history, that loves, you know, just the game and feels like the game's given them more, uh, than they've given back to the game. This is a great way to support the game of golf, uh, something I think that everybody feels uh, deeply about that is listening to this podcast. So if you want to join, uh, become a member, or if you want to gift a membership, go to usga.org slash fried egg, and you can sign up there. It's $45 a year, and you get a lot of great benefits, and uh, you do a lot to, to support the game of golf. So that's usga.org slash fried egg. And thank you to the USGA for their support. Now to Brentley Romine. All right, Brentley Romine from Golf Channel. Uh, you can find his work, his writing at golfchannel.com, as well as a lot of TV work this week because it is uh, NCAA finals. So we got the women's championship. Is uh, The finals is just starting while we're recording this. And then we have the men's championship kicking off this week as well. So Brentley Thank you for coming on. Thank you for making time. I know this is a busy week. This has got to be like your Super Bowl. This is like my Super Bowl. And it's funny because when I left for the Masters for two weeks, a month and a half ago, I told my wife that that was that that was my Super Bowl. And then I said, they used the same line again 
this week. And uh, she said, you don't get two Super Bowls, pick one. So um, if I had to pick one, it would definitely be the NCAA championship. That's funny. I, uh, I I have to say I I've used like I've used various things throughout my my tenure here uh, with the wife, especially extending trips. And one year in the same year, I ha- I extended a trip to play National Golf Links, and I was like, it's one of the greatest courses in the world. And then a few months later, I extended a trip to play Crystal Downs and said the same thing. And she goes, how many greatest courses in the world are there? And I was like, these really are two of the greatest courses in the world. Did you send her I'm not the, making this up? Did you send her the Golf Digest Top 100 or? No, no, I, she okay. didn't ask that many questions. She wouldn't have read it anyways. She just, you know, was, uh, you know, but but anyways, uh, yeah, time away is always tough. Um, busy week. So I want to get to kind of the women's side of the game first and and arguably one of the biggest stories in college golf in, in decades, Rose Zhang. She wins her second uh, back-to-back NCAA title. She sets the Stanford wins record. And um, for all intents and purposes, is it hyperbole to say she's maybe the greatest collegiate golfer of all time i i I don't think it's it's maybe the greatest i think she is the greatest and for those who were watching the broadcast yesterday when usc beat stanford usc's head coach justin silverstein said she is the greatest amateur golfer of all time now i'm not old enough to go back to joanne carner and julie inkster and those types of players but the comparison that we've been talking about the last few months has been lorena ochoa who played at arizona two years uh back from 2000 to 2002 and so that's that's the standard and it's this season that Rose has had where she's won eight to ten eerily similar to the year that Lorena had her sophomore year in 0102 and when you look at eight wins now Lorena didn't win the NCAA championship Rose did Lorena didn't win the Pac-12s but what Lorena did do is she went 933 two and three she lost to two players the entire season now, diving into... Do we know who they were? Uh, it was Veronica Nira Pathpongporn and Jim and Kang. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, Look I, at I, that. I practiced that. I practiced the pronunciation. Steve Burkowski does a great pronunciation of that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I did a little practicing for this because I knew that we'd probably just be discussing it. But th- there's, there's an argument because Rose obviously lost more than, than two players this year. But college golf is way deeper. And I was talking to... Laura Ionella, who's now the women's, the head women's coach at Arizona, she was teammates with Lorena. So she should be pretty partial toward Lorena. And she says, you know, Lorena was my teammate. I really can't, can't say, but she did agree that college golf and especially women's college golf much deeper. I mean, looking at the golf week Sagarin rankings, uh, Rose was probably about maybe a half a shot better than Lorena was um, over the second ranked player in both their seasons. And then one to one uh, to 50, the the 50th ranked player, um, Lorena had a much bigger, I think she had a shot and a half per round advantage on 50 compared to Rose. So that just leads you to believe that Rose was that much better than the next ranked player in college golf this season, which I believe was Julia Lopez Ramirez from Mississippi state. But number 50 is so much better. I mean, teams back in 2002, didn't have three, four, five players. Like they just didn't. And now, I mean, we're seeing four and five players finish in the top ten at the NCAA championship. So I think that I think that puts it to rest uh, that Rose is the greatest of all time. 
Yeah, the depth, obviously, I mean, the you see all the statistics with golf, like the fastest growing segment of golf is is junior women's or junior girls golf. Like that is the fastest growing segment of golf is with with uh, girls like teenage girls. And uh, you see the impacts of of it at programs. I mean, you know, obviously you have top top programs and Stanford's a perfect example of that. And obviously USC is no slouch. But the Stanford team, for all intents and purposes, with with, uh, you know, they obviously were a little bit shorthanded, not having Rachel Heck, but they were a, you know, historically great team the last couple of years and them getting knocked off. I think it I think it showcases a little bit of the depth of golf, but also like the beauty of this championship. I think, um, you know, I hope the popularity of, of college golf is growing, but like one of the beautiful things with this match play uh, portion of the, of the championship that they've developed is it has this March madness feel of really anything can happen if you get to match play. Yeah. And there's, there's obviously purists like, like Lance Ringler from golf week who loves 54 hole or even 72 hole stroke play uh, isn't a big fan of match play. And he's certainly not alone. Uh, Sorry, sorry to call out Lance there, but um, I, I, I like the match play because how often in college basketball is the best team like in the regular season does the best team win? I mean, I, I look back to, gosh, maybe six or seven years ago now, that great Kentucky team that I think lost to Wisconsin. Um, I think they were undefeated mm-hmm. or something and, and, and lost to Wisconsin. So um, I think for TV and for the growth of the sport and, and the popularity, you know, match play is a good thing. And I mean, USC is ranked ninth in the country. It's not like we're seeing the 40th ranked team win at all. So, and, and Wake's number two. So this is a very much, if we weren't talking about Stanford at the beginning of the year being one of the greatest of all time, like when you look at that lineup, like you mentioned, Rachel Heck, Brooke Say's on that team. Um, you know, she returned after Megan Gane, Megan Gane, who's a low am uh, uh, at the U.S. Women's Open. I mean, Angelina Ye is the seventh player on this team and she's a U.S. Girls Junior Champion. Now she's lost her game over the last eighteen months or so, but I mean, still, I, I mean, this is a this is a juggernaut team, and I think it's going to continue uh, to uh, to be a juggernaut team because it's a great institution, like it's a great academic school, and they got a heck of a coach and Ann Walker, and I mean, people want to go there and, and great and do great facilities it. too, in in really good facilities, yeah. except for the first hole um, where you have to hit over the power lines. I, I don't know if that's Oh, come on. In in golf architecture. I I didn't read Jeff Shackelford's new book, um, Golf Architecture for Normal People, but I I, I would assume that crossing a busy street and hitting over power lines is not the best start in golf. But I have played the course. Um, It's fun. It's a good course. Yeah, it's a good course. I I like it. I got to get down there more often now that I'm pretty close. But um, the uh, yeah, I think one of the things too, it had to help. Like USC plays Stanford a great deal. You know, I went out to an event they had at Meadow Club, which is up near where I live, and um, went up and and that was you know a final round of USC and Stanford duking it out. Like you know, I think there's got to be some intimidation fa- factor that Stanford has built up, and with USC that is a little bit mitigated because they see them all the time. They had competed with them regularly. They knew they could beat them. You know, they had beaten them regularly over rounds, you know, not regularly over tournaments, but regularly over rounds. And when, it, when, you know, the beauty of this tournament, as you alluded to, is like 
anything can happen in what in five matches over 18 holes anything yeah and speaking on usc their familiarity with stanford they only beat them they only beat them one time this year and that was at the pac-12 championship just down the road big time to beat them at at papago now granted that stroke play that's 54 holes of stroke play um not match play but still i mean it's still 18 holes of golf i mean you still have to play really well to beat a team like stanford and um, that, that was a big thing for, I, I thought it was interesting because I talked to Justin Silverstein after the win yesterday and he was talking about, you know, how he did the pairings and obviously Catherine Park, um, a, a huge flusher. I mean, there, there's a, a drill that USC does dating back to when Chris Sambury was the men's coach. It's called the extreme line test. And you basically hit 20 shots from nine iron to two iron or whatever the equivalent of, uh, is of that. I imagine not too many golfers, especially women's players hit two irons. Um, but you start out like you go like seven iron, five, three, four, and, and, and it's 20 shots and you measure the yards offline or from, or off center you are, and you add all that up. And the men's record is Rico Hoey, 43 yards. So we're talking about significantly less than three yards per shot off center. And Catherine Park, uh, broke the woman's record three times this year and her career best now is a 45. So she's an absolute flusher, but as you saw, she's, she struggles with her speed on the green. She's not a great putter, but she's very familiar with Rose because they're from the get the, the same golf course in Irvine, California, Oak Creek. They've known each other, their, the, their best friends. And so if anyone believes that they could beat Rose, it's her. But Justin said that in order to beat a player like Rose on a, very difficult golf course where it's all about just mitigating mistakes rather than going out and making a bunch of birdies. He needed someone that could get hot on the greens. And while Cindy Coe is their best putter statistically, you said she's just right around even strokes gain. Uh, Brianna Navarosa can get really hot and can gain two or three shots um, on the field with the putter. So he said that was the only chance that they had was to have someone who could make a run on the greens and uh, she didn't quite do that, but, you know, Rose showed up and shot uh, five over on the front nine and kind of handed her a little bit early ad- advantage. So, um, but yeah, I mean, th- this is just payback, I think, for all the years that USC beat up on Stanford and the rest of the Pac-12. So um, Stanford has been pretty good since 2015 when they won that national title. And, uh, but heck, I mean, Justin's a great coach. I mean, USC is going to be right there you know, getting some of the best recruits in the country right along with Stanford over the next couple of decades. Yeah. Um, so with, uh, with Rose kind of tying up, uh, putting a bow here, we'll see, you know, who wins, uh, the women's title between wake and, uh, and USC one comment, uh, Amelia Migliaccio, you're one of your colleagues at golf channel. She is. She's, uh, <laughs> I think this is too. one she, of the, she's getting married in, uh, <laughs> three weeks, uh, her and her fiance, Charlie. What? And, there's one of the virtues of of covid and what happened with covid is like it's seeming she's winning like the award of like seemingly bad in college golf forever award because i think she her career spanned so much of the televised college golf window and then obviously she got she took a gap year like it's just unbelievable she she's the quad cummins of uh women's college golf i mean quad was like 28 when he when he got his degree and he walked across the stage at Oklahoma. So um, I don't think she quite beat, beat his record, but yeah, I mean, she's, she's getting married in, 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 in three weeks. And there's a little concern because if you, if you look at 
the players' legs. They they wrote wake all the way down like their right legs and paint or something, and it's it's struggling to come off. So there's a, there, there's a little bit of a concern that it, it, there might be some, some remnants left by the time she walks down the aisle. So hopefully she has a long dress. Unbelievable. That's, just wait. That's, or, uh... or it's just like the, you know, like one, one letter or something. It's like walk or ache or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so what, what are your expectations for Rose as a pro? Like, what do you, I, I think that's the thing, the big question now that, that, you know, it's all signs are pointing to she's turning professional, you know, is she, you know, I think like it's a little bit different path than a lot of the phenoms. This is not the Lydia co path, right? She's gone and dominated college golf for a couple of years. And we see so many of the young, great, uh, LPGA players turn pro as quick as possible. What are your expectations? What do you think Rose Zhang um, will be as a as a professional player? Yeah, it's it's tough to say because I mean, looking at the way she's dominated all levels so far, um, and and the way she's played in her professional starts too. I mean, she's been low am at majors before and um, hasn't necessarily contended contended to to win, but. Um, it's just so so difficult because you look at some other recently, maybe not as dominant as Rose, but some really good college players like Pauline Roussin Bouchard and uh, Lynn Grant and Jennifer Cupcho and Maria Fossi. I mean, these were players who won a bunch in college, and it's taken them a little bit. I mean, Jennifer Cupcho just got her first major, um, but it took her a couple a couple years to kind of get her footing. And I expect a little bit of a transition period for Rose, just because. Um, it, it it is so different, but I think one thing, you know, she she obviously is is very talented, you know, all the way through the bag. But the one thing that everyone points to is just her mind, and I've just been really impressed. And that's another reason why I would, I would consider her better than Lorena is because Lorena didn't have all the attention, like she didn't have the spotlight like Rose did. I mean, the the amount of requests for her time, whether it's nil or media or, you know, video crews coming to Stanford and spending a few days or a week with her podcast that she's on, um, all of her sponsors and, and even just boosters and, and people who just want to be around her and, 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 and talk to her and kind of pick her brain. I mean, she is stretched so thin. I don't know how she does it. And I mean, she never says no to, I mean, I mean, heck, I mean, she had such a busy week this week and she's taken time to, you know, talk to random people. And even yesterday after what I would assume her, you know, would be her final round of college golf. Um, I think the expectation is that, you know, she's done after these two years. Um, there's, I think she's going to make the announcement pretty soon, whether or not she's going to come back or not. But she went up to Steve Burkowski because they share a birthday, which happens to be today. So happy birthday, both Rose and Burko. And she, she wished him a happy birthday and gave him a hug. I mean, most people would have been upset and, not really wanting to talk to anyone, but she's just, I don't know how she does it. And another really impressive story about Rose that Ann Walker told me a couple of days ago um, is that Rose is on a text chain uh, for her church uh, at Stanford. I don't know if it's a, if it's like an affiliated campus church or maybe off campus, but she's on a, a text thread to where students who don't have rides to church, like, you know, they say, Hey, I need a ride. And then Rose or whoever goes and picks them up. So not only does she practice until the sun goes down, she gives people rides to church too. So, uh, I mean, she's just one of a kind. I mean, I think it's you almost just kind of 
you know, stand there and kind of pinch yourself these last few days, just knowing that you're really watching probably one of the greatest moments in, in, in college golf history with her winning another NCAA title. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And dramatic fashion. You yeah. Know? Hey, she wasn't, came from behind. Easy. She rarely does. Yeah. It. I mean, I think she's only come from behind uh, twice this year now in, in her college tournament. So, I mean, she usually puts it on cruise control, but I mean, great golf translates no matter if you're two ahead or two I, back. So. I love, I love how you're like, yeah, she only came behind, tw- came from behind twice. Uh, and, her, and, and it's like, oh, so eight, she won eight times in 10 events. Hey, she almost, <laughs> two of them are 10, two of them, two of the, two of the 10 were coming from behind the, the other, the other six wins she just had on cruise control. She, she did, but she almost gave it back at uh, Augusta national. So, uh, I, I would, I would argue that that was almost more stressful than to come from behind win because, you have that big lead, and if you give it up, I mean that's all anyone's ever talking about. So um, luckily, Rose has built up enough in the, you know, in the tank of, you know, we're we're not going to call her a, a choke artist after one loss. So, I mean, maybe some people would, but I won't. Yeah, I I think that's a little harsh in, in a game as cruel as golf to do that. Um, let's transition. Uh, the men's men's tournament will be kicking off this week uh, through the weekend and uh, into next week. What what are the big stories? Let's just if you were going to pick out three stories from the men's game uh, and in college golf with teams that are at the NCAA's, what would they be? I think number one is Vanderbilt and North Carolina. I mean, these are two teams that started the year one A one B, just in terms of projecting who was going to win it all. And for the most part, they've they've backed it up. I mean, Vanderbilt still ranked number one. Uh, North Carolina ranked right behind them in golf stats. So, uh, I mean, there's there's been some bumps and stuff, and uh, you know, for for both these teams. But I mean, they they enter playing pretty good golf. Now, neither won a regional, um, but I, I I would say top to bottom, you you look at just the uh, amount of talent on these squads, and it's it's pretty impressive. I, I think that's that's the main storyline. Um, certainly Arizona state being the last year at Greyhawk. I mean, it's hard to believe that we've been here for three years now. Um, so this is, it's a lot of pressure. I mean, and, and they're not going to want to admit that. Um, but there's a lot of people here in this Scottsdale in this greater Phoenix area that are really counting on them, uh, to, to finally get the job done. So I think that's one of them. And then the player, the, uh, player of the year race. I mean, it's really close. We just saw Ludwig Aberg win the, the Hogan award. Um, and Gordon Sargent, uh, probably right behind him in my book. Gordon's got three wins. Ludwig's got four. One of Gordon's wins is an 18-hole stroke play event at the East Lake Cup. So I would give the edge to Ludwig. But if Gordon goes out and defends his NCAA title uh, on Monday, th- there's going to be a lot of people who, who are going to vote for, for, for Gordon. So um, that's probably the third. And, and then there's so many just ancillary storylines from – from Texas only having one player back from last year's national title team, Travis Vick, not traveling, struggling with his game, uh, Florida, um, really good top three with Ricky Castillo, Yushin Lin and Fred Biondi. There, there's, there's probably, I'd say a dozen, maybe 15 teams that you wouldn't be surprised. And then I didn't even mention your Illini, Andy. I mean, this is probably, I've been, I've been patient, patiently waiting. I, I was you trying know? to keep you on your toes. I, you know, it's, it's, uh, this might be Mike Small's best team. And I know it's hard to believe, you know, 
when, when you look at some of the squads where Nick Hardy and Dylan Meyer were like the four and five players that's freshmen. But this might be his best team just in terms of how they stack up uh, with with the rest of college golf. Because some of those Peters teams and stuff, they had to deal with you know JT in Alabama and Bobby Wyatt, Corey Woodsitt in Alabama. So um, you know this this might be the year. And I, I think Mike Small. And not to go full full Ben Crenshaw, but I, I think Mike Small ha- has a pretty good feeling about this one. Yeah, I uh, I just saw Adrian Dumont Deschart uh, just moved up to number two in PGA Tour U, which is crazy. Uh, Greaser's I, I, coming I, back. That's why we had like six seniors come back: Greaser uh-huh. and Brian Stark and Dylan Minetti. So yeah, time. so he's up to number two. That's great for for his uh, his game at the next level. But I I think the the thing that this team has that is shared with the the you alluded to it was the Danielson, um, uh. Dietrich, Hardy, Dylan Meyer team of Illinois depth. And I think that's the most important thing in this tournament is having five guys that can legitimately go play, especially when you get to the match play, because that's where, you know, if you have a couple squeaky wheels, it's really hard to win these best of five matches with, with, uh, with three really good players and two question marks, because, you know, you're playing, you're playing off against these teams that have, all these teams have great players. I think that's the, one of the interesting things, you know, in terms of the the players, the individuals, um, I think a big aspect of why there should be more interest in college golf is just how quickly these guys are having an impact. We, You hit on Gordon Sargent. Obviously, he was a big story at the Masters. Everybody was talking about Gordon Sargent. Ludwig Aberg, uh, who's a Texas Tech senior, is uh, the Hogan p- p- winner, uh, has played well at some prof- professional events, and I you know, will be a PGA tour card carrying member when he turns pro who are some other, uh, names to watch in terms of, uh, players that you expect to, to see at the next level sometime soon. There's, there's some good, good freshmen out there. I think when you're projecting maybe three or four years from now, when you talk about Ben James won five times this year at Virginia, uh, Caleb Surratt, who's played on the PGA tour a few times this year. Um, I, I really like this kid, Christian Moss from Texas. He's a South African. He's a, an Ernie Els prodigy, if you will. I, I, I like I, to hear. I mean, he's, he, uh, I, I think they call him the little easy. Um, I, I, I really, I, I don't, I, I don't know if that's, that's as widespread as, as it, it probably should be. Um, might be my favorite player now. He could be, I mean, he, he's had a good year. He's ranked in the top 15. In, uh, in golf stat, I mean, he's just another great freshman. And there's a lot of, I mean, Nick Dunlap's a freshman. There's a lot of really good freshmen. So um, th- there's, there's, a, there's a ton of, you know, I, I don't really know how to describe it, but there's, there's a ton of players who I think are really good college players who probably have a lot to prove maybe at the next level still. And it's so hard to project because, you know, you don't know, I mean, there, there's some guys who are layups. Like Ludwig is a layup. John Rahm was a layup. But you know, I, I'm I'm the last person too to kind of project talent just by looking at it. But there's a lot of guys who I think could be. Um, but you know, the the jury's out. You know, like like Preston Summerhays. I mean, he could easily, with that pedigree, be a guy who wins five, ten times in the PGA Tour, and he could be a guy who is on the Corn Ferry Tour for a year for a few years, and it takes him a while to get his card. So. Um, you know, there's 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 some good players. Um, I, I 
I like this Christo guy too. Have you heard of him from, from Georgia Tech? Christo Lampert? No. He's 6'10". No. Yeah, he is. He's, he's 6'10". And, uh, How far has he hit it? He hits it pretty far, but he also only brings the club back like halfway. Like it seems no. like the club is really a little bit laid off um, and he, he destroys the ball. But he's 6'10". So that, this Georgia Tech team, that, so this will be something to watch too. This is probably a, more of a shotgun start storyline. Um, everyone on the Georgia Tech team, with the exception of one player, um, is six three or taller. You have a you have Christo who's six <laughs> ten. Tallest tallest team in in uh, college golf they, history. They are, and they, they were really tall last year. Um, they, they didn't have a player shorter than uh, than six two. So, but they got I think Bartley Forrester might be six five, which is another which is a great name in college college golf. We call him the Subaru. Uh, I guess he, he's a driving <laughs> machine. Um, but yeah, they're, they could go up against anyone and, uh, on the golf course and on the basketball court, apparently. So you, you I mean, we have might any, see him at, at your local gym when you, you know, cause you're, you're a big pickup guy. You might see him. Used to be. I'm, I'm to too be. afraid of injury at this point. Does it matter it's, if you uh, get hurt though? I mean, if you, yeah, I, I have to be able to walk for my job. That's true. That's true. <laughs> One name. That you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention is Michael Thorbjornson. He almost won a PGA Tour event last year, and he's in the field. How, how, how did we not talk about Thorbjorn's son? Yeah, yeah. He, he, so he is he turning pro? What's the deal? No, what? he'll he'll be back. You know, I, I think PGA Tour U has has really kept a lot of guys from maybe jumping after junior year. Just and, and especially now that we have a PGA Tour card on the line, you basically get a year and a half on the PGA Tour. And then the top 10 guys get some sort of corn fairy tour status. You get in the final stage of Q school where you can earn more PGA tour cards. I mean, it's a huge carrot. And I think a couple of years ago when this program first came out, maybe people were a little bit skeptical because they're like, ah, I mean, is this really going to be that big a deal? I think it's a huge deal. I mean, this is, I mean, we, we have coaches, you know, calling, you know, PGA tour, you asking questions like, right. Like what, like, what kind of tournaments like it does it help to play like the the toughest tournaments all the time or does it you know help maybe to beat up on a couple you know smaller tournaments and you know some smaller programs and then like coaches asking about rules like we just had a rule change mid-season to where you don't have to play regionals where as before you had to play regionals your senior year otherwise you get kicked out of the rankings so this helped Travis Vick out now he did take last place points to everyone in the field he got the minimum three points and added one divisor. So it did hurt him a little bit, but at least he's still eligible. He's going to still get his Canadian status. And, uh, but it's, it's a huge deal. And so I think Michael, it's, it's hard to tell with some of the guys coming back, like Austin Greaser and Dylan Minetti, kind of where he's going to slot in and next year's ranking, but I would assume he would be one or two. Um, So, I mean, he's, he's going to have a huge year to where he could potentially be on the PGA tour here in about 12 months. Combined with the NIL, it's there's never been a better time to be a college golfer, I imagine. No, no. Now, is is it a good thing or a bad thing for the coaches or the schools or or the fans? I don't know. I mean, it's interesting. There's there's some parts of NIL that I like. There's some parts that I don't like. And I think one of the things that I do like is that players can market themselves and they can earn money and. you know, especially in football or basketball, when you know you're talking about billion-dollar sports, and the athletes used to get none of it except for a college scholarship, which is still valuable. But 
Um, one of the examples is, so I went to UCF and we had a, a place kicker about five years ago who had his own YouTube channel and he did trick shots, like kicked long field goals, did all this stuff. And he was making money off of it. And he got declared in, uh, ineligible to play um, because he was making much. Like, I, I think that that was ridiculous. But the thing I don't like about NIL is that a lot of these schools have these collectives now to where, you know, boosters, instead of, you know, donating to the school and earmarking it for like the journalism department or, or the football team, you know, in term, you know, for like a new facility. Now, a lot of the donations are going into these collectives and it's essentially just paying players out of the collective and they have them go do tasks. Like they might go sign autographs or something, but they get that money out of the collective. So, um, that, that part I don't like. And then when you mix it with the transfer portal, um, like I said, I, 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 there's some parts of NIL that I don't like, some parts that I do, and the transfer portal the same way. Like I think kids should be able to, if they're not in a good situation, get out of it. But I think now we're seeing players say, oh, like I'm at a mid-major, like I had a great season. Um, North Carolina or Texas or Georgia, like what can you offer me? Like, like I'm going to jump in the portal and I'm going to go get, you know, $20,000 or $25,000. So I – there's parts of it that I that I don't like. I'm not sure if it's necessarily a good thing yet, but I know it's good for the players. I mean, you got players making thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars for playing college golf, which is, I think, you know, maybe we didn't expect quite that much. Um, but I don't know. It's it's still early. I mean, ask ask me in five years. Yeah, I think I think one of the cool things with golf. Uh, specific is what you kind of outlined a little bit without that NIL, but the idea, like, I think one of the fascinating aspects of golf is you, you know, player development is so different um, player to player. And one of the things that happens with, with especially, you know, going from high school to college, kids grow, different things happen. They figure something out in their swing. They learn how to play golf better, you know, in these times. And some, so often, you end up with these guys that are playing at, at mid-major schools, you know, in, in my, in my era, you know, where they were just as good as the big, big college kids, but they, you know, there was no way, you know, you, if you transfer, you had to sit out a year and it, and it gives these people that like really become, you know, it allows somebody to become an elite golfer and then get into the elite training programs and, you know, facilities and different things that the big schools offer, because that's the thing that I look at now is like these these facilities that, that are at college's disposal, they're flying private, like co- elite college golf is just it's a crazy, crazy place. And where it's gone in the last 15 years is is unfathomable. Yeah, that's that's a good point about getting better. I mean, we're, we're seeing it now. I mean, there's there's a kid from Long Beach State and and Gilligan who is a top 15 player right now in golf stat playing essentially a mid-major schedule, which is super impressive. I mean, that's really hard to do. He's had a great year. He's in the portal and he's a sophomore. Like he's one of those guys who got a lot better. Now he had to overcome cancer um, during his high school career. So, I mean, that kind of set back his game a little bit. Um, he was you know, really a top-notch kind of middle school junior golfer before that. Um, so he, he's a great story. So I, I guess at the end of the day, college athletics is all about the player and it's about making sure that the player has the best experience. So 
that's why I think I'm, you know, I, overall I'm for the transfer portal. But at the same time, if you're a mid-major program, what we're seeing right now is they're essentially a, a farm system. You know, they 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 recruit players, and if if they recruit a player who they've identified and said, "Hey, I can help this kid get a lot better," and then you you know devote all this time and effort and energy into doing that, and all of a sudden the kid's like, "All right, I'm I'm going to go to Oklahoma." You know, I put on 80 pounds. I'm a burly boy now. I can. I'm going to go to Norman, and I'm going to I'm going to play for for Coach Hibble. But uh, wasn't wasn't there um, a a kid that went from D three to to D one? High D one Vincent Norman, yeah, right. Yeah, he, I mean, he, he that... went. He went from I think he was at Georgia Southwestern. Is it, I think that's a school. Um, but yeah, so he was D three and he went to Florida State for a couple of years and teamed up with John Pock and they made match play a couple of years ago at Greyhawk and now he's on. I think he might be. Is he on the PGA? He's on tour? the PGA tour. He is on the yeah. PGA tour. So um, yeah, I mean it could happen. And I'll tell you what. D2 golf is, is there's some really good players in D2 golf. Adam Spenson played D2. Yeah. Um, Barry. But there, there is. So a couple years ago, I did like a story about, you know, kind of turning pro and what it costs and, you know, how guys translate just in terms of what college they played for, what level of college they played at and how that translates to official world golf ranking and being a great player. And at that point, in the top 100 of the official world golf ranking out of the guys who went to college, because a lot of them are internationals and stuff and they didn't go to college, but there was only one player who didn't play division one golf. And that was Adam Svensson. So clearly, you know, you, one would think that you would have to at some point play at a division one institution in the start contract contrast between mid major and power five is crazy too. I don't have the exact number, but I mean, we're talking about, 70 80 percent of the guys who played college in the top 100 in the world played for a power five program i mean that that tells you something so um i don't know what mm-hmm. what that means like fully but um i just thought that that was interesting when i did that research a couple of years ago all right brentley last question we'll get you out of here but uh what is uh what's your dream scenario for the men's men's uh championship what do you want to see play out okay I, we we can get really creative here i think um, my dream scenario is that at, at least in the individual competition, we have something along the lines of Ludwig and Gordon Sargent in the same group coming down the stretch, getting to number 18, which I want to hear your thought real quickly on, on 18 at Greyhawk. So it plays as a par five for the women plays as a par four for the men. I think I know where you're going to go with this, but is it really that big a deal or no? No, right. Well, it par is just a number, right? Is they're writing down the scores no matter what, right? That's true. That's true. But yeah, so that's. I mean, and the way I remember last year's playoff, like those guys are hitting short irons into it either way because how far they're hitting. Oh, didn't didn't Gordon Sargent hit like one ninety two ball speed on that drive in the playoff? That see that yeah that was a really good. He made made Chris Goddard look short. Well, I mean, heck, Chris Goddard those putts that he missed down the stretch. Otherwise, he would have been a part of that playoff. That would. I mean, that's a dream scenario. What we had last year was Shakara and Goderup, or not Goderup, well, Goderup was in there until he missed the shorty at the last, but Sargent. I mean, even Ryan Burnett from North Carolina uh, it is is like a third-team All-American type talent. So that that was cool. I'd like to see something along the lines of Sargent and Aberg and maybe throw Thor in there um, individually. And then on the team side, I think we got spoiled last year too in that we had 
the top eight teams in golf stat who were in the field make match play. Um, I don't know if we're going to get that again. I think college golf is a little bit deeper, as I said before, where you have 12 to 15 teams. Um, but I, I think everyone's looking for Vandy, North Carolina um, at the end, one, two, pretty much all year, maybe not rankings wise because Auburn and Texas Tech um, and a couple of other schools have kind of gone in and out of that one and two spot. But you know, those, those, those two best schools, I'd, I'd like to see maybe Texas make a run, kind of keep the defending champion in there uh, with a young team. Um, but again, kind of like the women, there's so many great possible matchups with great storylines. I know having Illinois in there would be really cool. Um, Georgia Tech, you know, as we said, tall team. Um, you know, so that just because that'd be good for cinematography, it, you know, showing the disparity in height. That's uh, I like the I love the Georgia well, see, Tech call out. Actually, I, I think Georgia Tech could be at a disadvantage because for for those who have played golf in Scottsdale, it, people always worry about rattlesnakes and things like that. I think the most dangerous animal or insect, if you will, is the bees. There, there's a lot of bees in Arizona. Like I didn't know that that there were. Like I didn't know this was a, a climate for them, but there's a lot of bees and and they're all they're like they swarm. So Georgia Tech with Christo and 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 Bartley, I mean, there's a chance that we could have a a, a bee situation, and and, and they're going to be at that level. Um, I think that could potentially be a storyline to where maybe Georgia Tech doesn't get it in because you know they're they're closer to the the swarm. I, I think we're gonna we're gonna have to call it there. When we're we're suggesting that taller people have uh, have more bee problems. Brentley, thank you for uh, coming on. Everybody can read your work at golfchannel.com dot uh, com and see you on TV on Golf Channel. And uh, thanks and uh, enjoy your time in Scottsdale. Avoid the bees, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. I will try. I'm gonna go to CVS right now and get some. Uh, Do they make bee repellent? Is that a thing? I don't think so. <laughs> it could be. Oh, and I didn't even think about this. Georgia Tech, they're yellow jackets, so it's not going to matter. They're, they're friends. <laughs> look at that. They're look friends. Look at that. <laughs> All right. Now for a quick word from our sponsor, Mizzen in Maine. Hey, guys, I want to talk to you guys about Mizzen and Maine. Um, you know, they sent me a, uh, a box of goodies. It's, uh, it's one of the perks of the job. One of the things that I was stoked about was the dress shirts. I don't wear dress shirts that often. One of the reasons I don't wear them is they're kind of a pain in the ass to take care of. Not these ones. Uh, you don't have to go to the dry cleaner cleaners with these. They, they wash right in your washing machine. Uh, they don't wrinkle. They don't stain. You know, they fit really, really nice and they're super comfortable. So like what I've found since I got these is I just wear dress shirts around the house and and like out and about way more often because it's more convenient for me. You know who's happy about this? My wife. She doesn't think I look like a bum. I work from home. Oftentimes I'm found wearing t-shirts and, and uh, you know, joggers and things like that nature. All of a sudden, I've upped my, like, just the way I look on a daily basis uh, because these shirts are super comfortable and they are the exact opposite of what you would think of a dress shirt. So, Mizzen and Maine makes more than work clothes. I mean, I'd say they're dress shirts, but they're kind of just like something you could wear 
all all the time. On top of that, they make polos, pants, short shirts, uh, pullovers, t-shirts, all sorts of stuff. You know, they sent me a wide range of stuff. It's it's really comfortable uh, stuff. I think that's the big thing that they they do. Uh, but I would say, you know, give these shot, guys a shot. They make some really good clothes. And, um, you know, again, another good Father's Day option for if you're looking for gifting. If you use the promo code fried egg, you will get $35 off any purchase of $125 or more at Mizzen and Maine. That's M I. Z Z E N and A N D Main M A I N dot com. So Mizzenmain.com use the promo code FRIEDEGG for $35 off any purchase of $125 or more. Thank you to Mizzen Main. Now to Ryan Carey. All right, Ryan. Uh we're gonna talk about Golden Age auction uh, auctions uh formally. Green Jacket Auctions, which I'm sure will be part of the story. I'm really excited to kind of dive in. <laughs> I'm always uh, I'm always fascinated by entrepreneurial tales and and kind of uh, how everything started and and some of the inside baseball stories along the way. So I'd love to hear about you know the early days and um, I guess the first thing. Why can you describe what you do? For everybody? Oh, man. Yeah. So, I mean, I think at its core, we're an auction house for golf, antiques, memorabilia, collectibles in general. So anything golf collectibles, whether it's Tiger Woods or Bobby Jones, um, golf history stuff, uh, golf architecture stuff, anything golf collecting related, I would say, is what we do. All right. that That's easy to understand, I think. I always struggle explaining what I do, but you just did a very good <laughs> job with with what you do. Um with getting started, did you have a background in this? Like, what what prompted you to get started on this? Uh, I've always liked collectibles. I think uh, I just have that collecting gene. My mom was super into collecting, um, and so I've always liked. I like Michael Jordan. I collected basketball cards. I was super into that stuff. So, uh, sort of, um, but like not in an auction house, nothing like that. It was just kind of early days of internet. Um, you know, two thousand six is when I started the. The, the predecessor company. So, you know, that was, that was a while ago, that was, you know, pre Facebook. And, and uh, it's, it's kind of interesting to see even, even your trajectory with the fried egg and such, because the idea of making money on the internet for a golf company, it just didn't really exist in 2006. It didn't really exist even for the next decade after that. So it's just kind of wild that uh, it ended up here. Yeah. Take us back. Uh, I, you know, first off, you know, non-golf related what was what's been like your kind of like the thing that you cherish most from of your collectibles non-golf related is michael jordan basketball cards i've got uh, a couple thousand different michael jordan basketball cards i've got a uh, there are people with larger collections than me but i've got a very uh, substantial michael jordan basketball card collection that's great that's uh, you know as a as a chicago and lifelong bulls fan love to hear that you know, well, you know, the best part, you know, back then, you know, people my age, we all like Michael Jordan. It was, you know, nowadays all these kids like specific players, not teams. Well, Michael Jordan, well, that was the OG way of doing that. Every kid in my class liked Michael Jordan. It was very non-original, but uh, he was he was the best, obviously. It's funny. My at my uh, at my parents' house, we have a um, you know, remember the stand, Michael Jordan, like the <laughs> the course. him the the figurative cardboard cutout michael jordan yes. yeah i had one of those yeah 
it's just sitting in the basement. My dad's like, is that worth anything? I went on eBay and I saw it's worth like a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. Yeah. People, like, people love them. I, I had one. I definitely threw mine away unless it's in my mom's garage somewhere. But yeah. Yeah. Might have to try and get that out to you. Maybe you'd be the good <laughs> home, home for it. I think it's a little large for my collection. <laughs> uh, my basketball cards are great because you can just store them away and, uh, and my wife doesn't have to approve. See, that's a good point. Or you need a shed like me where you can just file everything away. You can collect it, put it in there, and then you know she only sees it if uh, if she if she stumbles in there for something. I do need a shed then. I, I would actually put a Michael Jordan stand up in my shed. Probably, I'm not going to lie. Um. So let's let's talk about 2006. Like, uh, what? Obviously, I, I, it's a full time job now, but was not a full time job then. What were you doing for for a living, and and kind of what got the wheels turning for for at the time? Then Green Jacket Auctions. Yeah, I mean, I was I was in law school at the time when I started it, uh, and then practiced law for a few years after. So it was just a complete side gig. Um, it's just, it was a company that I wanted to exist as, as a collector. So that's really it. eBay was already on the scene, but eBay is just so buyer beware. It's so hit or miss. All the big auction houses didn't care about golf. And so I just wanted to find cool golf stuff. And what's a better way than to start a website? I, I had some background in designing websites. And so, uh, you know, very rudimentary ones now looking back on it, but that was kind of the impetus. And I, again, like collecting. I also like making money. So I thought I could, you know, buy and sell things and make money. I was always good at doing that. And and that was it. Did I envision that this would be my like career, you know, 17 years later or whatever? No, absolutely not. I mean, that wasn't really the, that wasn't the thing, but that's why it worked, right? Because it was, it was a passion first. It wasn't a money-making project. We didn't make money for, you know, at least any sizable amount of money for several years. So um, that wasn't why I did it though. How did people find you when you like I you know we talk about discovery social media is like the king of discovery right uh, I my business wouldn't exist without social media in 2006 how you build a website how did anybody find out about the website I honestly have no idea other than we didn't need a lot of customers to be you know what we deemed successful at the time our first auction did I think we did about $80,000 worth of business, which was like, it felt like a million dollars at the time. It was, hey, that's it was a lot. Awesome. Yeah. I think we had maybe 40 something bidders. The funny thing is you look back on it, at least half the bidders are still my customers today. That's just, that's golf, right? I, I, I was given a speech recently for the, we met uh, fund and I, I made the comment that nobody used to be a golfer. You're either a golfer or you're not a golfer. Like we all have friends. We've got friends that aren't golfers or there's friends that are golfers. And so everyone that's into golf, man, they're still in a golf 17 years later. So it, it's a type of business that we were, we don't lose customers. We just keep slowly gaining some and stuff. So how they found out about us, I don't know, but we just didn't need a lot of customers at the time. We weren't trying to be a real business. We were just a, a website. You know, that was, that was a novel concept enough. There probably also was no competition. You know, we're the only thing, you know, even remotely similar to what we're doing in 2006. So, you know, if you like golf stuff, your friend sent the link, I guess. I have no idea. Whenever I like see a random bookstore, especially a used bookstore, I'll I'll wander in and I just go and I ask, "Do you have any golf books?" It's like a a thing I do in every town because I just have this like belief that one day I'm going to stumble across like an original George Thomas uh, book or absolutely, like absolutely, you know, this is a thing. But when you were putting together your first, you know, what did the first version your first auction look like what 
how did you get the things? What was what were the big pieces in it, and and how did that whole process go about? Yeah, so I I open. I mean, I owned a lot of the stuff myself because who was going to trust me to sell their items, right? Like I was a, a nobody. Um, eBay back then, you could like totally spam people. Like you could direct message everyone that was bidding and stuff. So I would find golf stuff. I'd direct message people. eBay, of course, no longer lets you do that. And so I would just steal their business. So eBay, eBay's uh, lack of understanding the uh, the internet and, and and being able to like you know copy them uh, helped me out a lot. Where I could find people that were buying things. And I'm talking about you know, $30 golf flags and things like that. Um, and so then you'd we, find the people that were bidding on it, message them that you had an auction going on. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So <laughs> that probably is a better answer. My earlier one is I just stole customers from eBay is really what I did. So, um, that was that they allowed you to do it back then. And there was no, no policing of that whatsoever. So that's probably how I got some of my first customers for sure. Uh, and you know, we, we, so we got lucky to, we had some really cool old master's badges in the first auction uh, that no one had really seen before. Um, and they sold for like a few thousand dollars each. And again, back then that was like, oh my God, I can't believe this happened. It was, we realized we had something. It was like, oh, this is actually like a legit thing here. We can make some money. So, so you do this first auction. Um, what year was that? You started the business in 2006. Was it 2006 or did it take time yep. to... Okay. 2006. I think we only did one auction that year, and we probably did one or two the next year. It was it was literally just assemble items, go find cool stuff that we thought people would like to see, and then once we had enough that we thought was worthy of an auction, we did put them up for auction. It was it wasn't again it wasn't really a business yet. It was like let's find some cool stuff and then let's tell everyone about it. Like hey, do you guys want to start bidding on this? And you know I own most of the stuff early on because you know again no one was going to trust me. How how do you go about with uh with that trust? Like I imagine that's got to be one of the big hurdles that you face a, in in this business is is the idea of trust. How do you go about you know proving authenticity? I, I like I always wonder this. Like how you know I imagine that that's like one of the the chief concerns from people that are bidding is like is this real? Yeah. So that was, you know, the early parts of our company. Um, people didn't know who I was. They, they, they just learning about this company. The internet wasn't really trusted at the time. Um, I think that this was all pre Facebook movie when the Facebook movie came out that changed everything. All of a sudden being a young entrepreneur was cool. But when I started it and I was in my twenties, like that was not cool. People did not want to be dealing with some 20 something year old over the internet and, and sending them money. They just didn't trust that. It's like, I don't think I ever lied acting like I was older, but I definitely wanted people to think I was older. I definitely wanted people to think our company was bigger than it was um, because that was just how the internet worked. It was, it was like all these kids now that like go to co-working spaces and, and, and like start a company and everything like that was not cool back then. Like my, my dad had no idea what I was doing on the side. He did not pay attention to this website thing I was doing. So it was just a different era. Um, and then we just built that trust over time. You know, we, we keep doing it and you keep doing it. And, you know, we have a, just an impeccable reputation in terms of like, you know, we always, if you Googled about us, you're going to learn about us. If you asked around about us, you can learn that we're trustworthy. But, and then the other thing is when you, the higher price points you get to, then all of a sudden everybody that has an item worth less than that trusts you. So the big kind of catapulting forward moment was 2013 when we sold the first Masters tournament winners, green jacket, Horton Smith, when we sold that jacket, you know, Sports Illustrated wrote about it and ESPN covered it, things like that. Then all of a sudden, everybody trusted us because we were a, a trusted brand all of a sudden. 
That's uh, so that's the big moment when it really exploded and and everybody became aware of it. Um, yep. In the lead up to that, what were what were some of the, you know, more large moments? Like, when did you start doing it as a full time gig versus a side gig? Yeah, so that's 2010. So we started the company uh, 2006. 2010, we had our first what I would call a good auction. We probably did a couple hundred to a few hundred grand in sales. Uh, we had a green jacket in that auction and we had the tiger irons that we ended up, of course, selling again last year um, for the record price. But that was the first time we handled them. And that was the first time we got a lot of real great publicity. So 2010, uh, Tiger Woods kind of talked some shit about us. And that was the best thing that ever happened to us at the time. And like, yeah, I think it was the TPC, uh, the, the, the Players' Championship uh, press conference. Someone asked him about, about us and he kind of talked some shit about us. And uh, it, was, it was awesome. It was like TMZ covered it. Uh, we got a lot of good press. And I, I, I was practicing law. And as soon as that happened, you know, we made a little money that auction. Tiger's talking about me. I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to do this instead of practice law. So I, I kind of on a whim uh, uh, quit uh, shortly thereafter. Um, didn't tell my parents about it. My dad found from some, found out from somebody else. And that's the first time I think he was like, all right, what's this website thing you do? I know you got a golf website, but tell me about it. Like, you're going to try to make a career at this? And uh, so, yeah, that, that's, that's how that moment. So thank you, Tiger, for that moment. What, uh, when, when he first said something, how did you find out about it? And w- were you at first, was there any worry that it might not be good? And then, you, you know, or did you just immediately think it was going to be? A, can you take us back to the moment? Like, how did you find out about it? And, you know, because obviously Tiger Woods talking about your company is going to, you know, you know generally be good. I, I think I don't think there was a single moment of me not thinking it was good because we were selling his items. They, they were being signed directly by the. The, the vice president of the Titleist, um, he was mad at Tiger for, you know, prior to that, he, Tiger left to go to, to go to Nike um, and, and he couldn't believe it. And so um, we stood behind the items. We knew the items were legit. The fact that Tiger was upset about it, um, I just thought it was cool, I think. I, I think I didn't think Tiger would ever know about my, my little fledgling company. So uh, no part of me, I think, was, you know, worried about the, we weren't, we weren't established enough to have bad press. It was just someone's talking about us. That's a good thing. And uh, yeah, it was it was awesome. It was just, it was cool. I mean, you know, people that my dad works with and stuff like that were like seeing articles about us. It, it was the first cool moment where like, you know, I cared about like, you know, my my old neighbors like seeing me in the press or something. Like the first time you get press is is, is a pretty special moment. So you you alluded to the, the Titleist um, employee that got you those irons, right? Um, and obviously it starts out in, in your, you own most of the items and people aren't, you know, you're not selling other people's items, but the only way possible to, to scale this business would be getting into other people's collections, right? Yeah, absolutely. It was, that probably happened in the first couple of years. Once we showed that we had a cool thing going, we, we, we had a good little core group of, uh, of, of buyers and sellers. And again, we didn't try to push it. We were just having one or two auctions a year. Did you originally intend on like did you know that you know you were going to start to have people coming to you with collections or was this you know kind of like an unintended consequence something that you ran into without spec that you didn't really expect no that was always the intention that was the intention i just no one would would trust us at first um auction auction houses or marketplaces are are difficult and they're difficult to replicate because you've got to have this meeting of the buyers and sellers at the exact same time Everything's transparent. Um, a retail store is different because 
you know, you see these fancy stores in the mall and you don't know what their sales really are. You walk by it, but that, that, you know, fancy expensive, you know, purse may have been sitting on the shelf for a year and a half. We don't really know that auction houses don't have that luxury. Everything is very transparent there. So we just had to gain the trust of the buyers and sellers. So that's why I put up the money first to do it. And I was having fun doing it too. I'd probably try to find deals and try to make money on stuff too, but that was not the long-term goal. The long-term goal was to be an actual auction house where we took on consignments. How did you find the original items? What was like the center? Uh, you, so you said the badges were the centerpiece of the the original. Uh, like, how did you originally find those? Oh, the early internet was like a was like a wild place. It was it was emailing people. It was like you know searching the word golf. It was it was it was the absolute wild west, but almost in a good way. It was a lot of like asking people for things like, oh, do you know who collects this? And what about this guy? And like you're, you're just asking around a bunch, and it was such a small group that it was kind of like the early days of Twitter, remember, where like, you knew all the golf people. This was before like golf Twitter was a thing. But it was like, yeah, I followed every single person that mentioned golf at all, because like, that's just who was around. So that's it. It was just this network effect of like, a small community, but you just found out who likes the stuff you do. I imagine a lot of that's kind of out of your life at this point. Yes, thankfully it is. I'm not I don't think I was any good at that either. And but, uh, but uh, yes, that, that is it is it is now almost all incoming and uh, we, 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 yeah, we don't do that anymore. Um, and, and, and thankfully, that's the case. We came up at the right time. I think a lot of successful businesses, there's a huge luck component, obviously. Before Tiger talked about you guys, what was the biggest hurdle that you guys had to, to get over? Uh, I think that just, just finding good stuff. I, I believe an auction should be driven by uh, uh, some good, solid items that make you pay attention um, it, it's not fun to just have, you know, the, the $50 items every once in a while. You want to have those, you want to have inexpensive items so that all collectors can, can participate, but you need to have those, those kind of headline defining items. And that was hard. I mean, you know, prices of collectibles were not what they are today. So finding like a quality item was just really hard. And then I also had no access at the time. I didn't know any players. I didn't know any former players. I didn't know any families. So we weren't really getting that word of mouth yet or, yet or anything. Whereas now that's why everything's incoming is, you know, if somebody has a cool piece, someone else is likely to say, hey, you should contact Ryan at Golden Age. And so that work is done for us. We had to do it ourselves back then manually. And really the only competition was eBay. Yeah, back then it was eBay. Um, back in like before my time in the 80s and 90s, uh, Sotheby's and the big auction houses actually did golf. They did it more on an antiques uh, level than a collectibles level, but they did it. They gotten out of it. And so uh, that kind of would probably help give me the idea was they used to do that. I see all these cool auction catalogs and they just, they, they, they got out of it. So eBay was the only thing there. And then in the auction world, I get a lot of credit for um, moving to digital only. I never had a catalog. Well, the truth of that is I couldn't afford a catalog. I was in law school. I'm not going to ship catalogs all around the country. That would take an actual like funding for a company. I just had a little website. And so that's all it was. So we were just early to the internet there. And so that's what you know helped us. We just kind of got our feet on the ground first. I mean, effectively, what you're doing is creating a two-sided marketplace, which is you know what so many you know successful internet companies are, is it's bringing you know both sides of the table and and being you know the middle middle person in it right but you're the you're the marketplace for golf collectibles effectively now for a quick word from our sponsor athletic greens 
This has been a big thing for me this year uh, is I've been taking AG1 by Athletic Greens every day. I take it. It's the first thing I take in the morning. I think, you know, since starting this, we're talking about entrepreneurial stories with with Ryan Carey. One of the really hard things about being an entrepreneur uh, is that is your work life balance. And I think when I think about my seven years of doing this, one of the things that uh, in the middle of of doing it, I stopped taking care of myself uh, as much as I used to um, before I I started this. One of the things this year I said to myself was I'm going to take better care of myself. Uh, it, it means making time to read. It makes you know a lot of different things. Um, working out, um, you know, time with family, being smarter about travel. These are all things that I'm trying to do to take better care of myself. One of the big things and one of the things that has really helped me is getting into a healthy routine. And AG1 has been honestly like one of the biggest things. I take it right at the beginning of the day and it makes me just feel ready to go. It get, it gets me healthy right off the bat. Um, it is a really like something that it costs less than $3 a day and it is just a habit. It's, it builds a daily habit um, and obviously has a ton of health benefits like gut health that set you up um, to be, you know, a more healthy individual. So listen, if you are looking for a comprehensive solution from your supplement routine, then Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Uh, to get this, go to athleticgreens.com slash the fried egg. That's athleticgreens.com slash the fried egg. This is a great foundational nutrition drink that just gets you started and, and makes you not worry about everything you're putting in your body in the day. So athleticgreens.com slash the fried egg, and you can get your five free travel packs that come in super and handy if, you, if you're on the go like me and a year supply of vitamin D. Thank you to Athletic Greens. And now back to Ryan Carey. As you, as you grew, um, you know, 2010 happens. Like what what are like, obviously you're you're growing, you're getting more and more inbound stuff. What are the things that are all of a sudden challenging from from that growth? The challenging thing is just it's it's finding new customers and and again that that whole marketplace is about that meeting of the buyers and sellers at the exact same time. So I always think as an auction, you're like you're only as good as your last auction. You have to keep reinventing yourselves. It doesn't matter that I had a good auction two years ago, four years ago. Um, so we, we had competitors. We had competitors that tried to uh, copy us. We had uh, big auction houses that tried to get into golf and try to take things over. So all of that, all of that was just, uh, there were like definitely some growing pains. There were times that the company, you know, you were like, what's going to happen here? How's it going to, how's it going to proceed? It was not, uh, you know, a straight line by any means. Um, so it's kind of, it's kind of cool that we've, we've gotten here, you know, in 2023. When, when you started it, it was just yourself, right? Uh, I, had a, I had a former business partner. Um, my old business partner, Bob Zafian was uh, with me for, you know, 14, 15 years. I bought him out a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. And and then when did you start to add people that help you, or are you still solo? We're 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 super small. We've got four employees. Um, we've always tried to be very lean, very small. I'm a big believer in you know we try to have uh, you know the most revenue, most profit as you can possibly have uh, per employee. Um, I, I I believe in those met metrics stronger. I believe in just having like 
crazy awesome talent and hiring the absolute best, um, but not having people. I don't like quantity people. I, I'd like to just worry about profit and, and making money. And so, you know, have we, we haven't tried to grow the fastest because of that. Um, so more of the, the growth is more organic than just like trying to add top line revenue and stuff like that. So we've been small. It was just the two of us for, for over a decade. Then we added an employee. And just in the last couple of years is when, when I've, I've made my, you know, a couple of key, key hires. Uh, man, I remember back when, when you were hiring, like, you know, Will Knight and stuff. And it was like, man, man, he's, and he's already hiring employees and stuff. Like that's all, that's awesome. He's, he's growing this thing. And, uh, you know, we, we, we try to keep it lean. Absolutely. It's uh, it, how do you know when the right time to add people was? I think that's like the toughest thing. Like what, when did you feel that? It, when you feel overextended yourself, when you feel like you're, you're leaving money on the table. Um, it is the absolute hardest thing. It's hard from a budgeting standpoint, a financing standpoint, but it's just, it's hard. I, I don't, I don't think I have the answer to when to do it. I, I took way too long to do it. We absolutely took too long to do it. I feel we like you do, you feel ourselves. like that every time you hire someone. It's yeah, like, you feel absolutely. like, it's like, why did I wait so long to hire this person? Oh man, I went, I, we had, you know, we'll talk later on about like what COVID did to this industry, but we just field so many acquisition offers and stuff now and like big, big companies and everything. And, and I met with this one CEO and he asked who did our auction descriptions. This was like, by the way, this was like a year ago. He asked like, who did our auction descriptions? And I said, I do. And he laughed because he was like, what, what do you mean? Like hire somebody to do that. And I'm like, I like to do them. I, that's what I do. And he's like, you do them. Okay. So uh, yes, we probably should have expanded a little earlier, but I just like being lean, man. What kind of like, I, you know, it's obviously it's a super unique um, job. I, I don't want to, I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but effectively, like it feel you're just like, you're, are you just looking for somebody that's like a hustler? Like what skills are you looking for in this? Yeah, that the, the tough part is um, until recently, this last couple of few years, people that identify as golf collectors tended to be quite older, um, tended to be super you know into history um, and, and older, and the younger people weren't into, into it that much. That's definitely been changing, and that's helped in a big way. So I was always looking for this perfect storm of young, ambitious, incredibly intelligent, but also loved you know, golf collecting. That was a true golf collector. It's, it's, there's definitely, you know, employees that, that doesn't matter. Um, but my main key employee, Curtis Loop, um, is a, he was, you know, Max Homa's sweet mate at Cal, then went to Georgetown. He's a plus four handicap. He was Sleepy Hollow's club president, like two, uh, uh, club champion two years ago. Uh, he was the perfect storm of that key hire. But then I also have my sister, who's a non golfer, uh, who is our GM. Because she's just an absolute rock star at, at that, so it's about what role you're hiring for. And again, I believe in just hiring the best. It's uh, I imagine you know you you wouldn't want too many golf collectors. You'd be worried about them getting high on their own supply. You know, no, you got to geek out at it. You know what I mean? I, I do think that people think it's a sexier job than it is because at the end of the day, all jobs are jobs. And like you know, you see on Instagram me playing you know some fancy course and everything. Well, guess what? Yeah, I'm going to do that, but we still need to ship boxes and take photographs and and do the actual work. Um, I once put on Instagram that, that, that I was hiring and I got 600 and something responses and it was like, okay, I'm not, I can't look at any of these. This is too many. I, I think I looked at the first five resumes and I'm like, I'm done. I'm going to go through like a, some other way to hire. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, you know, people, that's a lot of stress too. People want to like relocate like for me and stuff. It was like, no, I don't really want that. You know, it's, a, it's tough. It's a lot of pressure. I yeah I completely agree. It's like I I think people think my life's a lot more glamorous than it is, and like sure I've got some really nice perks to my job, um, 
but people, those same people aren't out there at like four in the morning to shoot photos and video and then then staying till 930 to do that. And like, you know, you realize the time between that. And it's funny, my my cousin uh, who came out to one of uh, one of my my trips with me he wanted to come and and like midway through the first day, he's like, man, this is this is like not like relaxing i was like yes it's work you know <laughs> and it's, it's actual work yeah you, you you're doing it because of passion but the work you have to, to do it and you have to be really into the work uh so yeah i mean listen finding someone that's also passionate about it is is, is huge it's awesome but at the end of the day it's a job they have to want to do the job too just like i have to continue to want to do the job and still be passionate about it. yeah the thing i think is like it's it, it the way i usually describe it is it's so much work but it doesn't feel like work. And that's the nice thing about it, right? Yeah, I, I, like, again, when I practiced law, um, I thought I liked it. I was like, oh yeah, I like being a lawyer and stuff. And then I started doing this for a living and I realized, oh, wait a minute, no, that sucked. This is awesome. So I could work every day, but yes, there's the, it, it's, it's, it's playing with rare pieces of golf collectibles. It's flying to meet with somebody uh, and see their golf. And yes, try to take make some time to play some golf as well. So it, it, listen, uh, my wife's a physician. She uh, has the you know, hardest job that, that I, I can ever imagine. Incredibly serious job and important to the world. And I get to do what I do. So I consider myself very, very fortunate. A bad day for me is like a nasty email from somebody. So you just mentioned like meeting with somebody that's got a collection. Walk us through a little bit like how that process works. How does, you know, you, I imagine there, there are people around the world that have these golf collections. How do you go about procuring things and you know, and, and such with them? How does that relationship kind of start and, and, and work? Yeah. So the, my job is really, there's, there's two main ways that, that drives every auction and the items we get. Uh, on the one hand, you have your, your, your big time golf collectors, your, your great golf collectors, whether they have, you know, 10 items in their collection or a thousand items of collection, whether it's worth, you know, a few thousand dollars or a few hundred dollars, or whether it's worth millions of dollars, they're going to drive the entire market. They're the ones who be buying and selling. They're going to constantly upgrade their collection. Maybe they get to a certain age and they're retiring and they want to sell their collection. Um, that is going to drive the auction. And then the second thing would be just incoming leads that are used just for a single item or a single you know category items. Maybe it's a former golfer. Maybe it's someone whose dad passed away that had this collection that they didn't even realize and, and that stuff. And, and, and part of that, too, are the, are the really great items, the, the, the Indiana Jones stuff where you're finding these holy grails, stuff that hasn't seen the light of the day in the year you know, for years. You find these cool old C.B. McDonald items, stuff like that. That's, that's the great stuff. And that stuff, a lot of times, is just incoming from a cool lead where it's, most of that's word of mouth. And that's what building the brand's all about, where we're not out there advertising for that. It's all incoming. Somebody tells you about a cool C.B. McDonald item or they find these old architectural blueprints or something to some golf course and they want to sell them, then you're like, oh, you got to contact my buddy Ryan. So we get a lot of that. And that's the fun stuff where you don't know what's coming and you know what that phone call is going to entail. What's the, what's the, is there something that stands out in your mind of, of that source? Like what, what are maybe one or two of the cool, coolest things that you've had come in where you didn't really, you had no clue it was coming in? Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to tailor this one to you with architecture and, and this was um, a woman that reached out to us and she saw that we had sold a replica program to the first master's tournament. And she then sent us pictures because she saw we sold it for a couple hundred dollars. And she sent us pictures when she had a real one from 1934. The first master's it was worth about 10, 15 grand. And we said that. And she said, oh, my God, that's amazing. I've got a bunch of other stuff, too. 
And so we start talking to her and it turns out that she purchased Perry Maxwell's old house in, I believe it was Oklahoma. Oh my uh, and, God. And in that she had a file cabinet and that file cabinet had this program, but all kinds of uh, photographs of his renovation at Augusta national for, you know, all these uh, courses that he designed um, as well. And um, these are the photographs. Now the tragic part about that, and I may have told you this at one point a long time ago, the tragic part was she prior to contacting us threw away what she called lots of golf course blueprints. And uh, she said, I asked how many, and she said, just reams and reams and reams of them. It was so annoying because they purchased this house, the one that was formerly owned by Perry Maxwell. And in the basement were all of these, what she called golf course blueprints. And they were so annoyed that the prior owner left them there because right when they moved in, they had to spend all this time and effort lugging them up uh, the stairs out of the basement and to the road to throw them away. So she contacted us roughly a week after she did that. And we, uh, yeah, there's no going back. They, they went to the local dump. They're, they're gone forever. Uh, no idea what was in there. But the quality of the rest of the contents of, of the Perry Maxwell collection was phenomenal. I believe it paid for almost the entire purchase price of the house. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. What uh, outside of architecture, what's another one? Maybe, maybe clubs or you know something, something else along those lines. I, you know, I need a second to process. I think <laughs> that's the thing about those those plans. Like they just they just go, and that's how they get lost. Absolutely, yeah. The my my personal favorite um is somebody from Augusta, Georgia, contacted us. Um, which happens a lot. You find some really cool stuff in Augusta for obvious reasons. But this person um, had, and they just, they found it somewhere random. I, I don't remember where it was, it was relatively insignificant. And they found uh, President Eisenhower's uh, old golf bag. And, you know, they first contacted you, you're like, oh, is it really, or is it some commemorative or something? No, it had, it had the five stars for the five-star general on there. Um, the, the clubs all had his name on it. The head covers were old Augusta National head covers. There were like tees and balls in there. The balls had had Ike on them uh, and, no. and Mr. President on on the balls. It was insane. It was literally like he just left his golf bag like one day or gave it to somebody. And, I mean, it had all the stuff to it. It was like he used it yesterday. It was it was awesome. And then the cool part about that was the USGA bought it and it's in the USGA museum right now. That's uh, that's that's neat. So do you, you that one was sold as the entire package? Correct. Uh, actually, I think we took. There was an extra Augusta National head cover that we sold separately, and I wish I had bought it because it's so cool. And you know those old driver head covers like could barely fit an iron today. It was like you know tiny, and uh, and it was just it was awesome. Um, I imagine that's that's got to be a hard thing as a collector um, yourself. Like, what are are there some pieces that you've purchased yourself off of it? Like, what's what's one or two that you yourself have been like? This is too cool. I'm keeping. Yeah, the good thing is that I kind of feel a sense of ownership when I sell the items, when it passes through my hands. So I don't constantly feel like I have to buy every cool thing. I do like putting it in new people's hands. I do like it when things end up at, you know, the golf course where it originated or, or you know, something like that, or just, just a really great collection, collector's, you know, personal collection. Um, so I don't feel like I have to buy everything, but I like photography. I like old photography. I like old Tom Morris. I like Bobby Jones, but I, I like old of uh, photography, which is interesting because it's one of the hottest segments all of a sudden, just the last couple of years, photography's gotten hot. And, uh, that's good for somebody who takes photos. You know, maybe someday, someday my, uh, my photos will be worth something. Exactly. I wouldn't be surprised. 
the uh so it, it, tiger mentions you and and this thing starts to take off um you know it's it, you said 2010 is when that happened um Correct. and we're 12 years later what have been some of the the big milestones along the way yeah. So then 2013, when we sold that green jacket for the record price, it was 682 grand. And so that was like, that was, I don't think we'd sold something for over a hundred grand or, or barely over it. And so, you know, to, funny. To best it's, our own record by five or six X. It's amazing how that happens. It's like, you feel like you have the ceiling. I feel like, you know, you always have the ceiling and it's like, I'm, I'm never going to get over that. And then it just like, when it goes over it, it goes miles over it. That and that's that's the way collectibles has always worked, and so that was you know I don't think I even realized at the time like I knew that it was good for business and all that stuff, but recently I went back and looked at our numbers, and it was just shocking how obvious it was. We just sold more items afterwards. We had more bidders afterwards. We had more customers. We had more page views. Everything went up from that moment on. It was just like it was just kind of this awakening moment to a lot of people, and then you know we kind of just then slowly grew the company for several years. And then the, the the big the big move forward was for us kind of a double whammy of COVID was massive for all alternative assets, all collectibles. I don't care if you collected comic books or classic cars, they probably doubled or tripled in value. So COVID was huge for us. And then the other thing was, you know, us selling the Tiger Irons uh, last year, just, you know, for a second it was, time, it was it was life changing for a second time. Yes. The first time we sold them for 57 grand and then. And then last year we sold them the same set for five point one five million, so that changed everything. I mean, that first buyer is pretty smart. <laughs> the first, the first buyer did great, and all the money went to uh, his foundation. By the way, he didn't even keep the money himself to profit it. Uh, that was I'd been trying to get them back for years. I, I I knew they would do well. I didn't know they would do that well, but I've been I've been trying to get them back for years, and and I had the pitch wrong. I was pitching them on money. Um, I didn't know the buyer that well. I um, just kept in contact with him and I, I would ask for him and I, I was telling him how much money I could get for him and how much profit he could make. And it turns out he didn't care about that at all. And so when I changed the pitch to the golf world needs to see these again. This is the right time. This is the right place. Let me do this. The golf world, the collecting world needs to see these tiger irons. And when, when I gave him that pitch, he said, okay, come get them. So that was, that was special. And then of course, what happened was it exceeded, I mean, everyone's expectations. Um, it was, uh, and, it, and it just, just changed the, the, the direct, you know, the direction of my entire company and really our entire industry. Yeah. I, how, I, this is a aspect I never really thought of, but like, how do you, uh, persuade people to sell things? I mean, it just depends on what their motivation is. Most people it's money, but the, it's not always the case. So like, again, I had that one wrong because I thought the motivation would be money. It usually is. Um, and so that's the good thing about a rising market is you get to pitch people pretty easily and say, Hey, remember that thing that you bought a few years ago? Or remember that thing I saw in your house when I was you know, touring it? Like it's worth a lot more now. Do you want to sell? Uh, so that's the only kind of, kind of outgoing kind of pitch I, I make is like, Hey, I know you've got this cool item. Like you should probably sell that now. And so that's the great part about what's happened the last couple of years as prices have gone up. It's a little counterintuitive as prices have gone up, more people are interested. And it's, it's what, it's that phenomenon where if baseball cards are only worth 50 cents each, only the people that really geek out at baseball cards are going to collect them. But when they start being worth thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars, well, then all kinds of money comes in and seen as like an asset. And so collectibles have become, you know, semi-legitimate assets over the last few years. And that has helped things tremendously. What, 
how's the uh your like kind of your sale your auctions how have they grown in in terms of items so we we basically grew just the quantity of items we like the auction to be a special event i don't want to have an auction every every week or every month or anything i want them to be a special event where most people don't even know when we're going to have them we send an email out and it becomes like a really fun thing to see you know what we have up for auction we have 25 dollars items and we've got twenty five thousand dollars items and just mix it up and you never know what's going to be and we started to have these big auctions we'd have over a thousand items in one auction and we still do a little bit of that but we've also just moved into new categories where we've tried to we, we never really got into golf clubs at all unless again tiger used the clubs and and then more recently we've been getting into some more vintage clubs but then also scotty cameron's and have just been shocked by how rabid scotty cameron collectors are uh, and so that's been a fun thing to move into as well and just kind of move into some new categories like that. Uh, putter, the putter collection, uh, pull, putter collectors, I mean, they're crazy. I, I remember I, I knew a guy that uh, I think he owned like almost every model of Bettinardi putter. And it's just like, it's just nuts. You know, it's like, um, you know, it, it 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 is cool. Like I have a bunch of putters. I got to get them fixed up. But like anytime I see like a, a Scotty Cameron at like, a garage sale or a rummage sale. I just buy it because it's going to, you know, I know it's going to be worth something more, you know, especially a lot of them. That's how you can find. I, I mean, it's interesting, like the things that you can find value in. What would you say is like the, been the fastest growing um, aspect of collecting? For us, it's Scotty Cameron's, but the Scotty Cameron, they've been around. People yeah. buying and selling them. Um, it's just, it wasn't big for us. And so that's, you know, we went from doing, you know, virtually no Scotty Cameron's a couple of years ago to, you know, we'll probably sell a couple million dollars worth this year, all secondary, all just resale. And so that's, that's been just our growth. And that's been a hot, hot market. And the other thing is just all this mod, these, what I call the modern collector stuff. You've seen how baseball cards are, are, are encapsulated by the company PSA. And others, um, all of that stuff's been really hot. Where you know, it, it's whether it's Tiger Woods cards or whether it's uh, they they they'll encapsulate photography, they'll encapsulate tickets. Tickets have been hot, like Masters badges and and tickets to Tiger victories and old Bobby Jones tournaments. Tickets have been just scorching hot. That's been shocking. Um, so a lot of it's that, and then Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods has just you know he's always been popular, but recently, especially after the 2019 Masters, he's kind of become his own collecting category. Where, you know, before people liked Tiger, but now they realize, wait a minute, um, this stuff's going to be valuable for years and years to come and decades to come. And it makes sense. Everyone's already collecting Michael Jordan and Tom Brady and Muhammad Ali and Mickey Mantle. But Tiger Woods stuff was just at a fraction of the price of those. And so that's been the big change. I mean, you've probably seen some of the headlines where a Tiger backup putter sells for a couple hundred or a few hundred thousand dollars. There's just not a lot of Tiger Woods quality pieces out there. So Tiger has been just incredibly hot ever since the 2019 Masters. Yeah, and I imagine that Tiger pieces are just so rare, right? Especially a good piece, not like just an autograph photo or something, like something very significant. Like, I can't imagine there's like uh, game-worn jerseys out there like there are with sports where, you know, you got basically a new jersey every 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 time they play, right? It's not like, I, can't, I don't know. There Maybe it is out there. Like, you could get some, like, you know, major worn tiger gear, you know, like a shirt. So, so you actually just nailed something there. I think one of the next big records that'll happen will be if somebody has one of tiger's red shirts from a master's victory, any major would be great. Right. But like if someone has, and I, and I have sold some of his red shirts before I have sold one to the 2010 masters, which he finished T4. But if someone has a tiger red shirt from like the 05 masters or 
you mean 19 2019 masters <laughs> oh my lord that that would yes that would it would it would sell for well over a million dollars we're talking millions and that is the next piece that i want someone to find for me is a tiger used red shirt i don't know i've actually never asked whether tiger still has them um, but this is my new mission to figure out where are tiger's red shirts did he even keep the 97 one i bet that's long gone uh you know i don't know but that is those will set records uh, there's a michael jordan jersey that sold for 10 million dollars recently so a tiger red shirt yeah man I, I, that's the next thing i need to find um with with um i i assume the way it works is you just have kind of like a commission fee on all the pieces right and it's you know it, if it sells for more it's good for the buyer it's not like a flat thing right where it's you know where this is what i'm purchasing for and going up that's how it works correct yeah we try not to own we try not to ever own the items um then i'd have to keep a couple million dollars with inventory and, <laughs> and that's no fun and, yeah. and, and so, inventory's uh, no yes, good we, no no so we we we, we take it we take a cut there's uh we we you know, auction houses traditionally charge the um the buyer's premium for the buyer and a seller's fee or a consignment fee from the seller. Uh-huh. Um, so you guys had to go undergo a name change. Um, I I imagine that probably was kind of a scary situation, and it, I, if I had to had to change my name, I would be a little worried about it versus like choosing to change my name. Is that one of the bigger hurdles that has has come about through the business? It was a a psychological hurdle in that you had, like you said, you had to get used to the idea of are we really going to do this and change our name. Um, it was aided by the fact that you know we we were given an opportunity, a situation that was like too good to pass up. Um, so it, there was no real debate as to whether we would change it. It was an obvious like, okay, guess we're going to change our name. This is this is a kind of a sweet deal we've got in front of us here. So. Um, and we had time to change it. I had a, a couple of years to change it, I think, or something. And, um, but the stress of picking out a new name, of trying to tell people we had a new name, of worrying about that stuff, of people, you know, not recognizing our name that we, you know, built up this goodwill and everything, um, that was stressful. And now looking back on it, it was the best thing could ever happen to us. It, it, it coincided with us growing the company, becoming this kind of new brand that wasn't directly associated, you know, with, with the master term or anything like that, or, or specific genre of collecting even. And, um, and that ended up being great. The timing ended up being great. Um, but yeah, man, I was, I was, I was super stressed about it. Just trying to pick a, pick a name. I mean, even down to, I sent my lawyers a list of 12. No, I I sent my lawyers a list of 12 possible names and they did a bunch of research and stuff and came back and like gave me two options they nixed 10 of them. So yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult to, to, to pull off, but uh, uh, now looking back on it, I mean, it was awesome, but everything while you're going through it, right. seems like it's, it's, it's so difficult, but looking back on it, like, yeah, it was, it was awesome. So you went from green jacket auctions to golden age auctions. And in the sense, what you're talking about is like, you know, a green jacket, jacket auctions would connote auction, auction items about the masters when that was just yeah, a fraction of what you were doing. Correct. And in, in, in the areas we wanted to grow to, it kind of pigeonholed us. So it was one of those things like, you know, I'd always thought about changing the name, but then like a couple, you know, a few years go by and you're like, well, I guess I'm not doing it now because we just got a bunch of press and, you know, so um, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm now so thrilled that we did. I'm actually glad that our hand got forced a little bit to change it because um, it, it, you know, it worked out. 
So we talked about the tiger shirts and, and I want to just kind of talk a little bit about like what's next. Like what are the goals? What are the pieces that that you are kind of your white whale and what are the goals of, of where you want this to go to over the next, you know, you've been at it now for almost 20 years. Um, like where do you want it to go and, and what are the uh, what are the goals of the next big pieces? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the main criticism uh, that we have from our customers is we don't do enough. We don't sell enough. We don't have enough auctions. We don't get enough collectibles in people's hands. So we should probably do more. We've got this uh, robust mailing list that I've obviously been growing for 17 years and I need to sell more to people. So we're finally having more auctions and, and doing more categories uh, too. So that, you know, again, so we can sell Scotty camera putters so that we can sell, you know, these, you know, golf cards and things like that, that we weren't really doing before. So that's been the fun part of the transition. And then, um, I've, I actually, other than then finding one of Tiger's red master shirts, I had one main uh, white whale, one grail that um, I can announce it here because I, I haven't told anybody about this yet, but the contract is signed. And so um, I wanted a, a, a painting, the most famous modern golf painting. Um, I thought it was unattainable. I don't know why anybody would trust me to sell it. It seems mind boggling to me, but um, later on this year, we'll be selling Andy Warhol's painting um, of Jack Nicholas, which has oh been my, my absolute dream to have. It is, it is, it is absolutely insane. Um, the, it's from the athlete series of which you've probably seen the Muhammad Ali painting and others that Warhol did. The Muhammad Ali sold at auction for, I think, $15.8 million. Um, and so we've got the Jack Nicholas uh, painting. Um, it's, 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 it's remarkable. He painted in the late 1970s, um, but the painting, the, the painting is in green and yellow. It like, it evokes like 86 masters to me, despite the fact it was done like seven years prior to the 86 masters. It is so awesome. And everything about it's awesome. Like Andy Warhol showed up to a hotel in Columbus, Ohio. Um, cause Jack Nicholas didn't want him to come to his house. He didn't know who he was apparently. And Andy Warhol showed up and did not have paint with him or a paintbrush or an easel or however you do paintings he showed up with a polaroid camera like a 20 dollar polaroid camera and jack nicholas was like what the hell is going on and andy warhol proceeded to take like 80 something photos of jack nicholas in a hotel room he wanted a golf club for jack nicholas to pose with and jack didn't bring his golf clubs <laughs> so they had to go around and find a golf club for jack to pose with and then Andy Warhol was instructing him how to pose with it, and it was calling it his stick. Can you move your stick over here? <laughs> and, and, and Jack Nicholas was, like, so frustrated. Um, and so uh, that painting is part of the, the athlete series um, we're going to put up for auction. And it's just been my personal uh, grail. I, you know, when I think of Andy Warhol, I think of Sotheby's and Christie's and the great auction houses. And the fact that, you know, we get to put this auction is just, like, honestly, it's the coolest thing I've ever done. I, I just I can't wait for it. I When I was – making the pitch for this and trying like to talk to my wife. I, I couldn't sleep. I was, I was, I was, a, I was an absolute mess. I has, I was my, my absolute goal. Life goal was to get this painting. And uh, yeah, the fact that we're getting it, uh, it's just, it's the coolest thing ever, man, to have a company that like you just start on like a whim and, and an idea. And then to be dealing with an Andy Warhol painting is, is it's just the coolest. Well, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful place to kind of stop, but you know, from that sense, like, when you get there, you've transcended your small little niche au uh, auction house, right? Like that's the, you know, it's, you, you know, when you transcend your little corner and, and are at a bigger, bigger scale, you know, that's, uh, it's unbelievable because that's a, a piece that any auction house in the world would want. Yeah. The fact, you know, the, the, the interesting thing there was, again, like I told the, the, the owners, I was like, 
yeah, you, you should. They're going to talk to Christie's and Sotheby's. And I was like, you should. You absolutely should. Um, and I was like, but let me make a quick little pitch. And, and then, you know, I did, I made that pitch, not on that meeting, but like a few days later. And again, I was a mess. I couldn't sleep um, because of it. And my pitch was very simple in that if you think it's going to sell to an Andy Warhol collector, by all means, give it to Christie's or Sotheby's. I think it's going to sell to a golfer. I think it's going to go to someone that loves golf. And those are my customers at Andy Warhol collector. Maybe it's one of the worst Andy Warhols that's out there. I don't know. But in the golf world, this thing is it's special. This thing one needs to be seen. Yeah, you got, you got to, you, it's like, you got to trust me on that. And they right on the spot were like, I think you're right. I think that's, that's super cool. I mean, it makes sense, right? Because there's the, the, the Andy Warhol collectors are all going to have an opinion on the piece, right? But Andy Warhol didn't paint golf except for this. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. He only did Jack Nicholas. Uh, so, um, yeah, man, that's, that's the exciting one. We're going to do a special event um uh, surrounding it and and i'm just i can't wait first somebody that say somebody that doesn't collect um and let's just let's just curtail this to somebody young young professional um wants to get into collecting what are the smartest things to you know that you, if, you looking at it as an asset right what are what are the things that you would look at that might accrue value over time well, the number one thing is to focus first on what you absolutely love. Don't buy something purely as an investment, um, you know, it, it, unless you just admit to yourself that that's what it is. Don't lie to yourself and, and, and collect an area that you're really not that fond of because at the end of the day, it is not, we don't know. Um, and so uh, collect what you love first. So like if you're, so if you're into golf architecture, collect golf architecture. If you're into clubs, collect something. A, a cl- get into clubs. If you're into books, yes. you know, yeah. I want, I want no say in what you collect until you tell me what your passion is or what you like. Once you tell me like golf architecture, okay, now I can tell you what within that is, would be a good investment, but don't just look for the best investment. I don't think that's ever fun to do. That's not what collecting is about. Um, unless you're like really good at that in like a speculative way and like a wall street type way. So, uh, find out what you love and then within that find your passion. And then my main, main comment there is to buy the best and to focus on just a single item or a couple items. Don't buy quantity. People are always starting off by buying quantity. They just buy golf stuff left and right, and they buy this for $50 and that for $80 because it's a, it's because whatever your price point is, I don't care if $300 feels like a lot of money or $3,000 feels like a lot of money, you're better off buying one item for the most that you really want to spend and saving up for that one item, seeking out that, that one item. So instead of buying a whole bunch of $40 golf books and calling yourself a collector, no, save up your money and spend 800 bucks on the CV McDonald book. Because guess what? I know you feel like you just spent 800 bucks or $1,200 and it's a lot of money, but it's still going to be worth that, if not more, a year or two from now. You're just going to get to own it and it's probably going to accidentally appreciate in value. Whereas your $40 books, you can't sell them for $40. Buy the best, buy good items. Yeah, that's the main thing. It's funny. It's, it is like kind of crazy. Like I, you know, the Bamberger to the Lynx land. Um, Oh. That was a book three years ago. You could buy for seven dollars on on uh, Amazon, and now I, I went on there. I think I mentioned it. I think DJ mentioned it on on the No Leg Up podcast. But like now, you go on there, and it's like, oh, I can't buy this for less than like eighty dollars. <laughs> like, what's going on? Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, this is a it's a fascinating thing about the collecting, and especially in the space of golf, where you have these really cool things that like you don't know when they're going to pop 
and you don't know like how uh, how that's going to work. But like, you know, the I think the general idea is it's not going to be worth less. Right. Correct. And, and that's what. And, and so the interesting thing is that whenever I'm like playing golf with somebody and I just meet them and they're like, what do you do? And, and they find out. And, it, you know, if a lot of times people will say like, oh, I'm, I'm not really a collector. But here I'm playing this nice golf, maybe a top 100 golf course with them. And I say, no, no, I know you're not a collector, but, you know, I, I see you got this, you know, head cover from Marianne and you got a shirt from Wingfoot and stuff like that. Like, you know, would you, uh, do you ever buy a club history book when you're uh, at Riviera or Marianne? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, I buy those books. I'm like, okay, well, we sell those. Uh, would you like a, a Marianne wicker basket in the corner of your office? Oh, yeah, that'd be sick. Okay, yeah, we sell that too. Uh, would you ever put a Jack Nicholas signed master's flag on your wall? Oh yeah. In fact, I want to buy one for my dad. Okay. Yeah. Well, so I know you're not a golf collector, but you love golf. That That's what we sell. Like, d- d- trust me, I have the golf collectors. They already know who we are. It's just when we have the golfers that find out about us and look at a website, you're going to find stuff that you like. Yeah. I, I mean, the last time you guys had an auction, I perused it and I was like, oh, I like a lot of these things, but you know, it's, uh, I was like, oh, I shouldn't buy any of these things right now. So, um, but Ryan, I appreciate you coming on. Uh, I've been meaning to have this conversation for a long time and, uh, really, uh, admire your entrepreneurial story. No, I mean, I, I, this is awesome, man. We've known each other for a while. It was cool seeing you come onto the scene. I, I knew that you guys were going to be a big success with the no laying up to it was just cool seeing like i got it when you guys started what you're doing it was so obvious to me that this was the future of kind of golf media and stuff like that uh it was so cool to watch you know your trajectory and everything and uh it's man it's been fun to watch yeah i will talk soon Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's massive episode was produced and edited by Matt Ruches. Thank you, Matt. Uh, give me feedback. Let me know what you think. I, uh, I've i been thinking about expanding these, trying to do a little bit more guests, um, you know, rather than one, trying to, you know, different topics. If you liked it, let me know. Uh, if you didn't, let me know. Good good and bad feedback is is needed. A quick reminder, we are doing a Memorial Day sale in the Pro Shop. We're doing 15% off everything. So we have a, a ton of stuff in there. Um, it is a, you know, it, it, Meg Atkins has done a wonderful job with that. But if you use the promo code Memorial Day at checkout, it runs from this Wednesday, which, you know, that's the day before this podcast airs, 524 through Tuesday of 530. So you've got some time. We're also shipping to Canada. So if you go to proshop.thefriedegg.com, it's 15% off everything. Enter the promo code Memorial Day at checkout and you will get 15% off. There's prints, merchandise, like shirts, hats, all kinds of stuff. Great Father's Day gifting. That's the theme of this episode. Uh, Father's Day gifting outside of the great guests we had. So thank you guys. Looking forward, we got the we got the LACC coming up. We got our video that will be up on Wednesday of next week. Really pumped as we get into this next uh, next major and uh, continue this uh, this drive through the peak time of golf. So thanks for listening. Thank you for all the support, and we'll be back on Tuesday with a new episode of the Friday.